and I began to look around me and in my city of Allahabad in a secular university I realized that every good things in my city had come from the Bible uh, that included my mother tongue Hindi that included uh, my university it included uh, the civil line the banking system the agricultural institute the university the education um, healthcare uh, municipality democracy everything in my city had come from the bible and that's what began to see that okay if this is the book that has already blessed india then i must study it Welcome to Reenchanting the podcast from Seen and Unseen. You can find us at the website seenandunseen.com for Christian perspectives on just about everything. I'm Justin Briley. And I'm Belle Tindall. And we are bringing you a very special guest today. Uh, we'll be introducing him in just a moment's time. But if you're listening via podcast, please do rate and review the show. It helps others to discover Reenchanting. And of course, if you can subscribe and like on YouTube, that also helps people to discover the show. Yeah, believe it or not, we are approaching the finish line for season one of Reenchanting. And so uh, towards the end of this episode, Justin and I are going to be speaking, taking a bit of time to reflect over the amazing guests we've got to speak to and some of the wonderful moments that have come out of season one. And last but not least in this season is Vishal Mangalwadi, a social reformer who's been described as India's foremost Christian intellectual. He's the author of books, including The Book That Made Your World, How the Bible Created the Soul of Western Civilization, and The Book That Changed Everything, The Bible's Amazing Impact on Our World. Yeah, so we'll be talking to Vishal about how he believes the Bible has shaped the West and his home country of India and why he believes the Bible is the key to re-enchanting culture today. So welcome along to the show, Vishal. Thank you very much for having me. And I really appreciate your initiative. Oh, thank mm. you so much. Well, normally we record this show at the top of Lambeth Palace Library in London. And because of that, we always ask our guests this opening question. What are you currently reading at the moment, Vishal? Well, I have been uh, traveling a lot to Canada, uh, Germany and Croatia. So I've had very little energy to read. <laughs> and therefore, most of my reading is actually for a change, uh, listening to videos. I keep track of James Webb uh, Space Telescope. Yeah and mm. all the interpretations that are coming. But a lot of my listening has been about uh, what's happening in India. Um, so I'm keeping up with the political news in India and um, the news of persecution, etc. cetera. So, um, so I do spend a few hours a day, but most of it has been listening rather than reading. Mm. Um, mm. This is partly because I'm trying to do six or seven books yeah, some of these are old books during the next two months, which uh, I have. So I'm reading my own things and editing them. <laughs> um, when it comes to the books that you have written, obviously, some of your best known books are, are on the subject of the Bible. And I wondered, grow, growing up in India, when did you first run into the Bible? Do you have any memories of first hearing or, or reading the Bible yourself, Michelle? Yes. Uh, as a in in the nineteen 
I guess it was 69, that uh, I was studying philosophy and I began to feel that I could not believe what my pastors were saying, that the Bible is God's word, uh, because none of my professors, who seemed to be more learned than my pastors, none of them believed the Bible. Uh, so I decided that I cannot believe the Bible. The doubting the Bible was very easy, but the question was, what then do you believe? And uh, that uh, I decided that I'll believe what the best philosophers and scientists believe, and what do they believe? And as I began to review my whole course, I took about six months in reviewing my course in philosophy and came to realize that philosophers knew that they did not know the truth and that they could not know the truth. And that's what triggered my interest in seeing that is there someone who knows the truth and who has revealed it to us? Uh, is, is there a word from God? Um, so I began looking at first Hindu scriptures, then Muslim scriptures, and then finally the Bible, mainly because of my older sister who said that you should read the Bible. And I said that I have read the Bible and it's childish stories. <laughs> she said, no, 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 you were a child when you read the Bible. Uh, <laughs> now you think you're a philosopher, so you should read it critically. So, so it was uh, at that time about 19, uh, yeah, I, I was 20 by then. I began to read the Bible and I found Genesis exciting because it was answering questions that philosophy had not answered. And I found Genesis and Exodus very interesting, Leviticus very boring. <laughs> and yeah. then when I came to Judges and Ruth, I found it, the Bible morally repulsive. Uh, when I came to the... Um, historical books of Kings and Chronicles. And then I thought that the Bible was a very boring book, a long list of kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord and he killed them. And nobody told me that modern political freedoms actually come from those boring books because they were the ones that told Western scholars how nations should not be governed and how God wants nations to be governed. So, uh, nobody told me, but it took a long time to realize that these are the books that have actually created modern India and the modern world. Uh, and therefore, I've been exploring that topic mm. and writing about it. So my background is in theology, so I'm enjoying this chat already. <laughs> what are we? Four minutes in and I'm already <laughs> delighted. <laughs> um, but was there, you know, you say um, you noticed that you were sort of looking at the world and you noticed that the um, political systems and things like that came from the Bible. Was there a moment that you can remember either within the biblical narrative or within society that that clicked for you? Was there a specific click there? Yes. Um, it, it was reading Kings and Chronicles and seeing all the political evil, that Kings did evil in the sight of the Lord and he killed them, that First, I found very boring, and I decided that this is not for me. I'm going to close the Bible once and for all. Mm. I'm an Indian. I don't know enough about Indian history. Why am I reading this Jewish history? 
And as I was ready to close the Bible once and for all, it suddenly struck me that Indian history is always praising Indian kings. Now, how good and glorious and wonderful they were. And this book is a Jewish book and it's condemning Jewish kings. So obviously, this is not court history. Kings didn't pay historians to write about their fathers. So I thought it must be religious history. Uh, the priests wrote it to criticize the politicians. Because in India, uh, the Brahmins, the priestly class, and the ruling class, the Kshatriyas, uh, are often up against each other. So the religious leaders wrote this book to condemn the political leaders. So I began to just confirm, to confirm my thesis that this is the point of view of the religious Jews. I began reading those boring books again. And I, to my astonishment, I found they are saying that the religious system was rotten. It, God says that your religious deeds are like filthy rags through Isaiah. And uh, uh, God destroyed his own temple. So I thought that, well, in that case, this has got to be the point of view of the prophets. Uh, a prophet is someone who loves to hate everybody. So they're criticizing everyone. So I began looking again. Uh, I, I know that these, these, these are very boring books, but I'm within two months reading them for the fifth time. And I find that, in fact... These books are saying that the majority of the prophets were false prophets. They were misleading the nation. The good ones were the losers. They tried to save their nation. They couldn't save themselves. But their books are included because eventually, after Daniel, Daniel himself is inspired by Jeremiah's prophecy that, yes, Israel will be destroyed, Jerusalem will be destroyed, and it will be rebuilt after 70 years. So uh, then I uh, uh, began to see that the words of these prophets that are included in these books are, in fact, turned out to be true and became the foundation for rebuilding the nation. So the, uh, the question was that the books actually are claiming that this is God's interpretation of Jewish history. It's not the Jewish interpretation. So even if that is true, why should I as an Indian be reading God's interpretation of Jewish history? That's when uh, my scales fell and I realized that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were called not because they were good, great, wonderful people, because through them, God wanted to bless all the nations. Uh, so God said to Abraham, you follow me and I will bless India. I will bless all the nations through your offspring. Mm. So has God done this? Uh, is this really God's word that he will bless India or England or Africa uh, through Abraham's descendants? And I began to look around me and in my city of Allahabad, in a secular university, I realized that every good things in my city had come from the Bible. Uh, that included my mother tongue, Hindi. That included uh, my university. It included uh, the civil line, the banking system, the agricultural institute, the university, the education, um, healthcare, uh, municipality, democracy. Everything in my city had come from the Bible. And that's what began 
to see that, okay, if this is the book that has already blessed India, then I must study it. And uh, it was then when I began this investigation, I found uh, that uh, modern India is a creation of the Bible. And I'd love to come back. There's so much to potentially unpack there. I mm-hmm. mean, just, you know, the starting point you made about, you know, that your language Hindi came from the Bible. That doesn't sound, you know, at first glance, like, 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 like you know, you, you wonder how that can be. But we'll come back to that before we get into some sure. of the theses that, that you've mentioned there, though, in the way the Bible has shaped India and the rest of the world. Tell us a bit about yourself, because um, you've already mentioned, I guess, this this encounter with the Bible as a young man. That I guess was as you were starting to take Christianity seriously, um, you 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 but you you kind of really have been at the forefront of social reform in your life as well in India, and that even ended up in prison. Tell us a bit about that and and what the situation was like for you in in that at that time, and likewise how the situation continues to be for Christians today in India. Yeah, well, once I realized that the Bible is actually God's word and I should live according to it, uh, the God's heart for the poor and the oppressed, uh, because that's how the Bible really opens in Exodus, that Israelites are slaves. They're crying out against slavery. and God sends a deliverer that slaves can become a great nation in a land flowing with milk and honey, with shalom, liberty, peace, justice, uh, that God has a heart for the poor. And that's what Jesus said, that as a Messiah, he has come to set the captives free. A bruised reed he will not break. A flickering flame he will not quench until he establishes justice on earth. So the kingdom of God is justice on earth. The justice and righteousness are the pillars and foundation of God's kingdom. So that's what Christianity is all about. And that inspired me and my wife to go and serve the poor. We were married in 75. Six months later, we went to a farm that my father had bought when I was born. And... uh, we began to live there and understood. I was writing my book, The World of Gurus, at that time, uh, but uh, we be also trying to understand poverty and what can we do. So out of that grew our service to the poor. And in 1980, uh, there was a hailstorm which destroyed wheat crop in about 100 villages and also uh, the roofs for the of the poor because the poor people made handmade tiles. As we began our service to the victims of Hailstorm, uh, I'll not go into the details of the story, but I was thrown in prison. Um, and it, the superintendent of police, a very educated police officer, who had taken the oath to uphold the Constitution of India, which guarantees my fundamental right to life. He told me that if you do not cancel the prayer meeting for the relief that you have called, I will personally kill you. I don't need to arrest you. I I don't need a warrant. I'll come to your home, pick you up from your home, take you into the jungle, shoot you. Hyenas will eat you. are you going to cancel this prayer meeting? 
So I responded that, well, I have to ask my wife if she's okay being a widow, uh, then I can decide whether to cancel the prayer meeting or not. Um, it's uh, The conflict had been going on for about a week. So he sent me back home, being sure that my wife wouldn't want to be a widow. But anyway, we decided that we cannot cancel the prayer meeting because they've already stopped our work, relief work. Uh, all that we are saying is that victims should come together and pray. Maybe the government itself will do the relief work and we wouldn't have to do it. So when I, when I was, they didn't kill me because the local press was supporting me, but it was in jail that I began to raise this question of how do you build a society where the police is there to protect you, not to kill you, um, where the politicians, a criminal politician was putting pressure on them, and the criminal politician was supported by Hindu religious leaders who felt that our service will lead to many Hindus becoming Christians. And that was the background. So uh, how do you build a society where the oppressed are free to choose their religion? They're free to pray. And the prayer meeting, the particular prayer meeting they wanted us to cancel was not a sectarian Christian prayer meeting in a church. This was the local Gandhi ashram, state-funded Gandhi ashram had invited us to hold a public meeting as Mahatma Gandhi used to organize public prayer meetings, uh, just getting the victims to pray for relief. So uh, how do you create a free society? That was the... Um, question that triggered some of these studies and inquiries that how do you reform India? But right now in India, uh, there's state-sponsored persecution happening in the northeastern state of um, Manipur, where almost 370 churches and church-related buildings have been burned. 30,000 Christians are homeless. At least 75 Christians have been killed. So, uh, how do you build nations? And this kind of engagement uh, did earn me the title of being a social reformer. Uh, but, of course, I've been studying how was England reformed um, and how was uh, Europe reformed and America, etc. Mm. And the idea is to take these lessons from European history to the world. Mm. And you uh, that question, how do you build a state where people are, you know, you've spoken about the Bible being um, for justice, righteousness, compassion, peace, wholeness, all of those things. What about critics of the Bible who actually equate it more with um, immorality? I saw the BBC News, they uh, they reported that this week in Utah, it's been banned in certain primary schools for its violence. Um, but you've given your whole life, you know, it's your life's work to sort of say the opposite, to show the opposite. Um, can you tell us why that has become so important to you? Yes. In the USA, it was Thomas Paine um, who wrote the first frontal attack on the Bible. Uh, it, it was published as the Age of Reason, but it was published in three parts. 1805 was the final uh, part of the Age of Reason. 
which was showing the Bible is full of contradictions, absurdities, immoralities, etc. And mm. people like Richard Dawkins and all have been highlighting that the God of the Bible is a monster. Okay, so you reject the Bible as has America and Europe. Oh, what are you going to put in its place? This is where the Great Books Project of Encyclopedia Britannica became important. Uh, Mortimer Edler grew up as a non-observant Jew. At the age of 14, he started reading Aristotle and then Aquinas. And uh, he teamed up with Robert Hutchins, the president of Chicago University, and Encyclopedia Britannica paid them create the great books of Western civilization. This was the humanist canon. Let's let's reject the Jewish uh, Christian canon of the Bible and let's choose the best and the greatest books of Western civilization. And they created this uh, initially 54 volumes, which became 60 volumes of all the great literature from the West. Now, that project went into complete shambles by 1980s because Mortimer Adler, who grown up as a liberal Jew, uh, himself converted to Episcopalian faith uh, at the age of 84. Um, Adler realized that the if you rely on the humanist wisdom, the best of humanist literature, you have a lot more contradiction. And this is where Alan Bloom's book, who was also in Chicago teaching for 40 years, so Adler and Hutchins and William James, uh, the, these were uh, important philosophers in Chicago University. Uh, so was Alan Bloom. And in 1987, he published Closing of the American Mind. And he pointed out that 40 years ago, when he went into sh- Chicago University uh, as a teacher, uh, students wanted to study great books of Western civilization, great music, great arts, great architecture. But by the 1980s, as he was re- uh, preparing to retire, s- students were not interested in Western uh, literature, uh, Western classics. Parents were not interested in their children wasting their time with humanist wisdom. University was not interested in teaching the great books. Uh, why not? He gives two reasons. One, all the great literature of the West is, in fact, based upon the Bible. If you don't know the Bible, you can't understand Milton and um, even Isaac Newton, but Dickens or Bunyan. Uh, uh, you can't understand these great writers, great artists. You can look at Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son. It'll make no sense to you if you don't know the Bible. So you can't understand Bach or Beethoven or anybody else. You can't understand music uh, or architecture of the West if you don't know the Bible. But the second reason which Alan um, Bloom points out is that it is the openness, so-called openness, which means the relative truth, that let's look at everybody, let's look, everyone has their own truth, This openness is what has closed the American mind. This is the heart of Ellen Bloom's thesis, that everybody is true when they're completely opposite to each other, means that nobody has the truth. If nobody has the truth, why should I bother studying them? So the rejection 
of the Bible has actually closed the Western mind. It's funny you mention Alan Bloom because uh, I've got a quote from him here. Um, and I think he said words to the effect that, you know, if you didn't have the Bible, you would need a book of equal seriousness, you know, to replace it, as you said. And and it that project sort of failed, didn't it? Um, I think he also said the Bible is not the only means to furnish a mind, but without a book of similar gravity, read with the gravity of a potential believer, it will remain unfurnished. I suppose the next question is, what what are we losing as we as we f- fail to read the Bible any longer? I mean, is it just that our cultural references go that we don't realize that the Milton, the Shakespeare and everything else was based on the Bible? What 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 else do we lose uh, as, as we lose well, that familiarity with the Bible? Well, the people who have uh, been discarding the Bible have actually been sowing sawing off the branch on which the whole of the Western civilization was sitting. So, and this is what um, uh, had been understood by the end of the First World War, that we are actually sowing off the branch on which we are sitting, and down we came, and at the bottom was not a bed of roses, but barbed wires. So it is not the Bible that is disintegrating, but it is the Western civilization, the secular atheistic mindset, which is uh, making a fool of itself and disintegrating uh, the Western civilization. Because as Tom Holland is pointing out, uh, that the humanists boast of relying on human wisdom, but Every good thing that they talk about, the dignity of man, the human rights, etc., actually comes from the Bible. This is the same thing with Jordan Peterson. So what happened to Mortimer Edler, uh, realizing that all the great ideas in the West came from the Bible, and you reject the Bible, uh, you have actually destroyed yourself, not the Bible, because yes, the branch was cut off, uh, but the tree will bear um, new branches. New branches will sprout and flower and fruit. Oh, what would be destroyed is Western civilization, not the Bible. Mm. Speaking of it being a branch on which we sit, your thesis is that it's also a branch on which modern India sits. And, you know, so if we circle back to a few of the things you mentioned earlier, could you talk us through a little bit of that, particularly perhaps the language, um, the story of that and where this thesis has come from, that uh, Christianity undergirds so much of modern India? Because that, I imagine, to some of our, well, most of our listeners will be something that they have not heard before. That's not a thesis that I've come across before. So it's really interesting. Yes. Well, thank you. Sure. First of all, the name India. The name India comes from Latin Bible, from the book of Esther. Um, uh, Twice the book of Esther mentions India as the last province of the Persian Empire. So uh, when uh, Columbus uh, starts the, the sea route to India, uh, nobody in India thinks of it himself as an Indian. We are part of the Mughal Empire. There are a few other kingdoms. Uh, Columbus, of course, gets stuck in South America. Why are American Native Americans Indians? Why were 200 years later Native Australians called Indians? Why is Indian uh, Indonesia, Indian Asia? Um, so wherever Europeans were going, they were finding India. 
(laughs) Because no geographic entity or political entity called India ever existed. Right. Uh, So it was the European mind that was fascinated by India because reading the Bible, they assumed that India was the end of the world. When you have reached India, you have reached the end of the world. So first of all, the very name India, when Vasco da Gama finally arrives in southern India, in uh, Calicut, in Kerala, uh, no no one calls himself an Indian. Um, it's the, the idea of India existed in Western mind because of the Bible. And it is William Carey, who uh, I've just completed the book, The Father of Modern India, a British cobbler, uh, who is really the father of modern India. Uh, who, he begins the linguistic revolution uh, because of which finally Hindi becomes the dominant language of India. Uh, but uh, Hindi, Hindi came out of Hindustani, which was a, a Scottish uh, surgeon uh, with the British East India Company. Um, uh, he was told that Persian is India's official language. He traveled from Calcutta all the way to Farukkabad or Faisabad, Faisabad, I guess, and he found that nobody in India actually speaks Persian. Yes, the Mughals, who were not Persians, had made Persian the court language of India. The two other class, classical languages 200 years ago in India were Arabic, the language of Quran and Islam, and Sanskrit, the language of Brahmins. But Brahmins wouldn't teach Sanskrit to their own wives. Uh, Sanskrit had no script. Uh, it was a sophisticated language. It had a grammar, which was written in poet, poet, poetry, but it had no uh, written script. So these were the three classical languages. And therefore, as uh, the, the Scottish surgeon begins to travel uh, on foot, he realizes that th- th- this is all myth, that Persian is India's language. And he decides that Hindustani is India's language, and he creates modern Hindustani, out of which Henry Martin, who comes from Cambridge, Henry Martin in Kanpur uh, creates Urdu which is the state language of Pakistan now. So Urdu came out of Hindustani. In reaction to that, then Hindi was born in Allahabad and Varanasi. Allahabad is my hometown. And it was an American Presbyterian missionary, Reverend S.R. Kellogg, who really created modern Hindi grammar. And it was another Presbyterian missionary in Varanasi, Reverend E. Greaves, who uh, popularized Devanagari script. So all of Indian languages, the vernaculars being transformed, was work of Bible translators. That linguistic revolution is what began with Martin Luther in Europe. All of the modern European languages were product of Bible translators. So are all of the Indian languages, over 100 languages, have been, these are vernacular dialects that have been turned into literary languages by Bible translators. You can't be a priest of king uh, and king uh, managing God's kingdom if you don't know God and if you don't know his word. That's a, a, a reformation of priesthood and kingship of all believer is what transformed Europe uh, 
started with the linguistic revolution and education revolution that every child ought to be taught. So 500 years ago, there were no schools in England. There were no schools in Germany. There were universities, but no schools. Uh, the, the Whatever literacy, etc. was happening, was happening in monasteries and nunneries. Uh, it was the... Uh, the Roman Catholic Church had invented the institution of the university, but the universal education came from the biblical theology of priesthood and kingship mm. of all believers. And that revolution was uh, came to India from with the British missionaries, particularly it's, it's, starting with William Carey. It's just a fascinating sort of history of, of the way that as you say, the Bible and especially the Bible translation project from the Reformation onwards obviously impacted not only Europe, but but eventually India through those missionaries and Bible translators. I mean, at a moral level as well, you, you talk about the way the Bible and Christianity has influenced India as well. Um, you, you talk about some of the practices that are now outlawed, but but which were common, um, infanticide, widow burning and so on, sooty. Um, do you want to just talk about the way that those aspects of India, you know, culture in that part of the world have, have been impacted by the witness of the Bible and so on? This lowering of the status of woman in India was um, fe- fe- resulted in female infanticide. The fe- uh, girls would be killed. Um, and we, Ruth and I, began to struggle against female infanticide ourselves. So we've had first-hand experience of fighting against this evil. But then uh, a woman, if once she's married, and uh, she was married as a child. So in 1987, there was an 18-year-old widow who was forced to commit, uh, uh, burn herself on her husband's funeral pyre. And I went and wrote that study that was actually uh, th- that about that uh, episode, which became frontline uh, uh, story in 11, a chain of 11 newspapers in India and began to dominate. So it, that's when I discovered William Carey is the man who uh, began fighting against widow burning in uh, 19, 1806, uh, 1803 perhaps was the first time when he saw the widow burning and he began to research this issue and it was abolished by 1829. And uh, then uh, it took uh, 25 years or so to fight against widow burning uh, before the uh, practice was outlawed. Uh, but it was being revived in the 1980s as the influence of the Bible was weakening. And, uh, and I, I, I had to do a lot of work. Uh, and that's how actually my first, uh, the, the book on Indian history began with that episode. Uh, now I've just completed this week the book called The Father of Modern India, William Carey, who was mainly responsible for both uh, fighting against female infanticide and widow burning, but he also began the linguistic revolution that created all of modern Indian languages. And um, the concept of India as a nation came from his paper, Friend of India. So he uh, he became a friend of India, while British colonial rulers were looting India 
the missionaries came as friends of India to build modern India. And that's what the Bible began to do, that God has uh, chosen his church to go into all the world, to bless all the nations, bring healing to all the nations. So the missionary interest and colonial interest collided. They also partnered together because the uh, colonial rulers were there. But basically, uh, it was the Bible-believing Christians in England who created the modern Indian civil services, the police force, the judicial system, uh, agriculture. So William Carey himself established in 1820 the Agri-Horticultural Society in Calcutta. Uh, and I can go on, that every good thing in India came from the people who loved the Bible and began sought to uh, uh, um, apply that to India. They also fought against British exploitation. So they changed the character of East India Company from being an a just a force that was initially, of course, they were just merchants, but later, once they acquired political power, uh, they began to take bribes and they began to exploit and uh, legislate rules which were against Indians' economic interest. And this was began to be changed under the influence of the Bible. So the, the British uh, evangelicals transformed East India Company And then they began the social reform movement within India that created modern India. So, yes, female infanticide and widow burning were both. William Carey was the key figure in abolishing both of them. And Ruth and I struggled against both of these practices in the 1980s. And that's what uh, particularly the opposition, my opposition to revival of widow burning was what led to the the parliament under Mr. Rajiv Gandhi uh, enacting stronger rules against widow burning. Would you would I would it be fair to say then that the um, the motivations William Carey's motivations around abolishing things like infanticide and widow burning they are what we in the West assume are just is just common sense, universal human rights, the dignity of every human. But actually what you've identified is that that's a inherently Judeo-Christian biblical notion. And that's where that came from. Absolutely. Uh, it is not common sense that men and women are equal. No culture has ever seen Uh, male and female as equal. Islam allows a man to marry four women uh, because men and women are not equal. A woman is not allowed to marry four husbands. In Hinduism, a soul reincarnates as a female because her poor karma in previous life. So equality of male and female has never been self-evident anywhere in the world It was not self-evident in the USA either uh, when the the Declaration of Independence says we hold these truths to be self-evident that Mm. all men are created equal. That is absolute nonsense because (laughs) in 1776, 
it was not self-evident to average Americans that slaves and slave owners are equal. It was not self-evident to every American that male and female are equal. That's why female lib, uh, women's lib movement had to begin in America, because women experienced themselves as unequal in America uh, 150, 200 years after the Declaration of Independence. So equality of male and female, equality of all human beings, these are theological ideas. They are not self-evident ideas. And this is what Tom Holland is pointing out, that you borrowed these ideas from the Bible, and you take the credit uh, that, oh, our brains invented this idea that male and female are equal and all human beings are equal. These ideas depend on the truth that God made man in his image, male and female. The Bible is the seed which uh, the kingdom of God comes when the sower sows the seed. The truth is sown and it takes time for the seed to bear fruit. Uh, particularly a crop can be harvested within six months or four months. But when you plant a tree, uh, the seed takes a long time to germinate. And poorer the quality of the soil, longer it takes for the seed mm -hmm. to germinate and then to pair flowers and branches and fruit. You, you yourself actually said you, you hope that the Bible, as it has revived the West in the past, could do so again. How do you think we could see that kind of re-enchantment of that Christian vision that comes from Genesis onwards? I don't know, emerge again in, in our culture, even as because the, that, that question, and we've asked this of Tom Holland as well, is can you keep those fruits without the roots? You know, as we cut off the... Our, our kind of familiarity with the Christian story. Do do we retain those those intrinsic ideas of human dignity and so on? So so where where do we go in in the absence of that? Well, th that is uh, obviously the important question, and uh, the first part of the question Jesus answered in in his parable, the second parable of the sower. That a man sowed good seed in his field, but when the seed sprouted, there were also weeds. And uh, the, how did this happen? Didn't we sow good seed? And uh, the master said, well, the enemy did it at night. So there is another power that is active in this world and sows the false seeds. So the, the servants asked, should we pull out the weed? And the master said, no, you must tolerate. Tolerance is important. Let both grow. There will be judgment. But until the final judgment, the sinners will persecute the saints. That's what's happening in Utah, where the foolish education is saying the children should not be taught the Bible. That's intolerance. So uh, the sinners will persecute the saints. Saints must love and serve sinners. Share the truth with them. Their hearts are also soils. You plant the truth of God's word and the time will come and they will accept the truth. This conflict continues until the end. There will be in the end a final judgment because there is a transcendent God who is on the throne and who will assert uh, his uh, his kingdom, establish uh, his kingdom, which, which has begun. So uh, how do we change 
the future is your question. Well, all of modern Europe and modern India was created by the idea uh, of the education that Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. He baptized the church with the spirit of truth. He sent the church out to disciple nations. In a, uh, a disciple is a learner. A disciple maker is a teacher. The church's role is to disciple, which means the church's role is to educate the nation. That's why the church began to educate everyone. And in England, as you travel around in every village, you see that there was the parish, the church, and the parish school, mm -hmm. uh, where the priest was in charge of educating the child. This was the implication of Luther's. Luther began the second education revolution that church should educate. Now, uh, in Europe, it was after 1832, after Napoleon, that the church surrendered Ministry of Education to the state. I'm not sure when this happened in England, uh, but I have studied a little more about America. So the answer to your question, what do we do? Uh, the solution is simple, that the church has to take education back from the state. State is not an institution baptized with the spirit of truth. The church is baptized with the spirit of truth. Church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church in Europe has, and in America has abdicated its responsibility to disciple nations. And it has become too individualistic that we are here to save individual souls, take them to heaven. Discipling nations, discipling United Kingdom is not our job. Uh, we are a pluralistic society. Yes, of course, you are a field in which uh, the seed planted by the Satan and seed planted by God both have to grow. You have to tolerate. Tolerance is one of the greatest gifts that biblical Christianity brought to Europe. So when uh, everything that John Locke wrote in his letter concerning toleration, every good argument came from Martin Luther. Uh, he quoted Martin Luther, but... The humanists wouldn't acknowledge that uh, the Luther is the source of tolerance in England, in, in America, in all over Europe, as well as in India, that it was the Bible that brought tolerance. So, yes, we must tolerate, but state as an institution which is not baptized with the spirit of truth, that's not to say that everything the church says and believes is true. But it is church's job to seek truth, to repent when it is teaching falsehood and to uh, believe, to seek what is truth, bear witness to the truth. This is church's job. So the solution is for the church to take education back. And in our proposal for the third education revolution, we are proposing that every little church in every village in in, uh, in England can become a university better than Oxford and Cambridge. Because a church can have 15 students coming to the church, but 15,000 professors can come to the church every day online. And these would be experts from all over the world. 
who can come into the church and students have an option to choose what to study. So, yes, for financial reasons, historical reasons, we have the system of education that we have today. But to, uh, now technology makes it possible for every little church to become a university better than Oxford and Cambridge. And that's the education revolution that has to come into the world. Uh, because now you have universities, uh, professors who are lost, you know, who, who do not know what truth is. And universities are no longer interested in truth. They are no longer interested in character development. It is church's job uh, to make sure that in every child, the image of Christ is formed. The godly character is the responsibility of the church. So uh, we're, we're proposing a third education revolution, which will change the future. It's going to be hard in England, but let it begin in Africa and Asia and South America. England will have to follow. Mm. Oh, Vishal, I um, I imagine our listeners are going to scream at me at this point because you present a view of the world that is so interesting and so unique and I think will be quite new to many people. So I'm sure they'll be finishing this podcast with a hundred questions. Um, but for that, I'll direct them to all of your work, your books. Sure. <laughs> but uh, thank I, you. I am considering of coming to England in October and it would be good to have a session. Oh, there uh, you uh, go. Yeah. Tom Holland and I, and I debated on, uh, on one Zoom session where the democracy came from Greece or from the Bible. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and in so, that one hour, he, he confessed three times that he hadn't actually studied the history of freedom. Right. <laughs> so, there you go. So round two might happen in London Maybe. in the autumn. But for now, yes. we should say... Thank you. Thank you very much for your time and for your passion and your uh, and your wealth of knowledge. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the Reenchanting Podcast. Thank you for having me. It is explosive, uh, but it is a revolution. Well, there we are. That was the final episode of uh, the first season of the Reenchanting Podcast. It's uh, it's been a very varied and interesting set of guests. Ten, ten guests, yeah. I think, who have joined us, Belle, over the last couple of months. So, mm, um, yeah, yeah I, thought, I thought we could maybe take a moment to to sort of decompress and have a little bit of a think <laughs> about what happened. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Any particular kind of highlights that stood out for you over, over the, the ten guests that we've heard from over the last series? Yeah, I think... A few, there have been, do you know what, there have been moments in quite a few of the episodes, quite a few of the conversations where I've thought, oh, this is that, this is the type of conversation dreams are made of, you know, Mm. like so many moments. I think for me, um, it's been a whirlwind of a 10 episodes, but I think going right back to the beginning, right, uh, Francis Spufford, he, uh, just some of the things he said, again, I'm a literary Mm. Geek. I've discovered that in the course of doing this show with you. <laughs> yeah you, you... I don't hide it very well <laughs> no it's great I mean and and when you said I, I'm always amazed at how many books you've read in preparation for each interview uh yeah. but I think you're just a reader so so it comes just a reader yeah yeah it's yeah it's not a hardship <laughs> but um <laughs> so to just chat to Francis about all things reading and writing mm. and literature and 
and his book Unapologetic which I loved so much Mm -hmm. but you know just some of his little sound bites I still think about often you know when he said we're culture making creatures Mm. we can't stop making enchantments you know just some of those lines where you thought oh my gosh you've you Mm. read culture you know you read culture so well um I think yeah I smiled for days I reckon yeah no it was it it (laughs) was delightful I was so pleased that Francis came in and we were able to to sit down with him Uh, I I also you know loved uh unapologetic and 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 even though in a sense the movement that he was responding to to some extent you know is not quite what it was the new atheism and so on I, I think that he still has such a helpful way of framing Christianity for people because mm. I think that that sort of assumption that it's just uninteresting or boring or irrelevant, you know, still prevails in a lot of culture. And and he is just someone who just sort of the way he presents it in, in such mm. a fresh way just completely uh, yeah obliterates that idea. But uh, yeah. yeah, so that that I, I loved ha- you know starting the se- series off you know with him and Graham early on. Really enjoyed Louise Perry as well. Um, oh yeah, who uh, I just think it's fascinating thinker. You know, obviously to some extent going against a lot of you know what you might expect from a secular sort of feminist thinker. But mm. uh, yeah, I, I I I just thought a lot of what she was saying. I think there's a sort of sense in which she's just somehow. I, I was encouraged by the fact that she has given as I see it, a lot of women, the opportunity to say, no, this isn't working. You know, this, mm-hmm. this, this sexual revolution thing, it was sold. We were sold something <laughs> which uh, actually, and I say that as it's not just women, it's for men as well. You know, that, that I think sometimes you need someone like that to sort of call it out and say, actually, um, if this isn't working for us, if, <laughs> if, if the more we press the freedom button, the more miserable we are at the other end, mm. uh, maybe there is sort of some wisdom in, this this you know archaic idea of christian monogamy you know um, and i just i just thought it was fascinating to to kind of hear that and uh and, and i think a lot of people are, are actually listening to her be they christian or not you know mm. i think there's a lot of interest in that yeah i think the thing with the louise episode is now i have a hundred more questions and a hundred more <laughs> thoughts for here <laughs> but that's the sign of a good uh yeah good well, what i liked I about that was that that I just thought I thought the engagement between both of you was superb you know uh, that obviously you I think you appreciated a heck of a lot about her book but you didn't mm. go along with everything and no. and and it was great to hear you sort of be able to to ask some of those questions and, and push back a bit uh, as well yeah. yeah it was great to be able to she's yeah, yeah she's she's a wonderful person to have a conversation with yeah. absolutely yeah absolutely yeah Tom Holland's come up like several times in many episodes, not I know, not least this one. I think um, he comes second only to Nick Cave. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, we could play bingo, couldn't we? With, with <laughs> yeah, uh, how many times Tom Holland and Dominion get referenced, <laughs> and Nick Cave and his book get yeah. referenced. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. 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 But... I, I, I really enjoyed though. I mean, I've spoken to Tom a number of times in different mm. contexts, and his episode, I just thought again reinforced a what an amazing thesis he has and how interesting it is and, and kind of so relevant to the moment we're in mm. um but i think maybe those and a lot of listeners actually commented on this it was the last 10 minutes of the interview that were maybe the yes the most interesting what did you think absolutely i've had so many people friends of mine uh some who are christian some who aren't say that those they want to bottle those last 10 minutes and 
I've been trying to think. I think after 50 minutes of Tom just being the genius that we all know and love, <laughs> um, and we love that about him, those last 10 minutes felt so personal and human. Mm, and I, mm. again, some of the things he said about, you know, everything, I, I can't believe what I want to believe, but I crave mm. it so much. Mm. You know, mm. all of that was so human. And, and I think it spoke to probably what a lot of people are feeling. So, yeah, those last 10 minutes of the Tom Holland episodes. Yeah, yeah a triumph. I, I think I laughed the most um during lord michael hastings episode because he's <laughs> he's just like the most gregarious yeah. fun character that that almost i've ever met you know he, he, it was wonderful i was listening to it in the car with my wife and <laughs> i was like um the number of times that the mic distorted because he, he let out some bellowing laugh yeah and leant back in his <laughs> I oh i just did, i just did an impression that was silly <laughs> but leant back in his chair and, and his yeah. willingness to do those impressions as well of americans and irishmen and, and all sorts of things oh, just I forgot about but, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're right his uh i think his irish was much better than his american if i remember right <laughs> yeah but yeah. He, no it's wonderful character and and i i just loved loved everything he had to say and the, yeah. the way he actually brought it down you know to earth about the way in which that that big vision he had of you know as a 16 year old of bending the mm. power of the prosperous for the potential of the poor um, oh that was that was very well done there very well it, remembered it, it's gone in it's gone yeah, in it's stayed, you, you know it's the alliteration a, a master of alliteration yes yeah. and but the way that he has actually done that in his life i, yeah. I just was was bowled over and the way that yeah. obviously his christian faith has has spurred him on in that so yeah lots lots of great memories and that's probably only took us to about halfway through the series but yeah yeah, probably. Then we had the mind-blowing, utterly mind-blowing Marilyn Robinson. And mm. I feel like I'm not qualified to say what I thought about that episode because I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> Every time I've listened back to it a couple of times now and, and oh. each time there's like a different thing that I'm like, oh, yeah, what an interesting way of putting it and, you know, yeah. a different sort of take on it. And um, mm. I mean, one of my a good atheist friend of mine on on twitter said he just absolutely loved that episode you know um oh, and that's right. always the mark of a good episode as far as i'm concerned when you've yeah talking about theology and christian things and an atheist, and an atheist say, enjoys I really, it. really enjoyed that so she yeah a force of nature it felt like yeah. a real honor that yeah. one felt yeah, like an honor absolutely. yeah yeah um and jennifer wiseman oh it's got you know jennifer was was wonderful as well just a completely yeah. different take on the universe and and everything else um i loved the way that she I think what came across most powerfully to to me was was as she looked at the the vast expanse of time, you know, and mm. our tiny little moment in it. The mm. way she sees this as as sort of speaking about the the glory of of who we are, that we are able to to do science to to, yeah. to see ourselves in at this moment in the universe, mm. and that doesn't, uh, you know, one of the things I asked her was, is this not an argument that we are? so small or insignificant kind of thing and she, and she just sort of turned that on its head i think and said no i think it's it's an argument that we we're kind of we've got this incredible privilege of of living yeah. at this moment when we can you know witness the glory of god in the heavens around us yeah we're it's like we're a good kind of small there yeah. is a good kind yeah. of small and we are it <laughs> the jennifer dr jennifer wiseman episode that i loved it from beginning to end and i think that was my most surprising episode because I have no background in science, let alone astrophysics and astronomy. So I kind of thought it would be, uh, I'd have to sort of pretend, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> and not at all. She has, well, she's made me look at the night sky differently. Yeah. I've started hating like pollution, pollution now. And Very I blame good. her for that. Um, so she, yeah, my most surprising episode. I, I loved every minute of our conversation with Jennifer. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I think, 
one of my favorites for sure was was paul kingsnorth as well mm. who um again we've had a lot of feedback to and um i just think because he's got a fascinating story and he's he's a poet at heart mm. but he's also obviously a very deep thinker and just has fascinating thoughts on everything really from from ai to you know wild saints to you know to atheism to you know buddhism wicca yeah just i just think it's just fascinating to just listen to him talking about things really and and that's what i enjoyed about that episode he's such a um you know because i've read a lot of his stuff and it's weighty it's Mm. daunting it can can be a bit doomy Mm. and that but his voice through it all cuts through it because he's so pleasant and like you Mm. say he's a poet he's romantic Mm. he's Mm. so enchanted with so much that he's a wonderful guide through what can be some really scary topics and i very much appreciate him for that and and like many of the guests i've I've found he had a sort of an optimism even though he talks about a lot of kind of you know scary stuff in a way that you know the meaning crisis the ai crisis that we know whatever at the Mm. same time i got the real sense that he really believes he trusts that it's going to be okay because there is Mm. a god if god is real as he said yeah yeah it's real if god is real god is real um, yeah and and so so for me actually that was it was quite a sort of uh affirming kind of hopeful kind of thing because in a way, his own story is is the most unlikely of converts, and mm. and I think for me, it kind of makes makes me feel actually, you know, there can be a different story. You know, if it yeah. can happen to Paul, it could happen to anyone. You know? It can happen so, to anyone, yeah. yeah. And he's so funny with it as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, just a great episode. And yeah. of course, I can't not mention uh, Bishop Graham Tomlin. Not just not just because he's my boss, <laughs> and I'll be seeing him tomorrow morning, <laughs> but because you know this. Uh, well, he laid the foundation so perfectly, yeah. didn't he? In that first mm, episode, yeah. that pilot episode, and uh, he was so gracious because that's the first podcast episode I've ever hosted, mm, mm. <laughs> and uh, and he was a wonderful guest to get to speak to. Um, yeah, what yeah. he had to say about culture and again, just such wisdom—an hour of pure wisdom. Mm, yeah, yeah, brilliant. And of course, we've we've so appreciated the, the you know the last couple of episodes with with Catherine and Vishal today. So um, it's it's been a, a great way to kick things off. Um, yeah. Um, if people want to send in their their feedback, of course they can do that. You know, by responding to us on social media and that kind of thing. Um, I guess there's I guess they can do that via the website as well. I'm sure there's a a way of contacting. On, yeah. On scene and absolutely. Unseen, Head to scene and unseen. There is a contact us page there. Uh, oh, we would love to hear. Because for me, uh, these conversations have done exactly what they intended to. You know, I've been re-enchanted again and again and mm. again in places I didn't even know I was disenchanted, you know. So um, we would love to hear stories yeah. if that's also been your experience of listening in on these conversations. And, and likewise, if you think there are guests that we may not have heard of that, that mm. you know, now that you've got a flavor of what we're trying to do here on re-enchanting, give a sense of how in all areas of life the Christian worldview can speak to and re-enchant uh, a secular often materialistic culture and perhaps you know of someone who fits that bill then why not tell us about them and and perhaps we can have them on in a in a future season of the show but uh yeah seen and unseen.com and check out the, the go just navigate to the page where you can contact us and <laughs> yeah. we'll be delighted to hear from you it's easy to find <laughs> yeah so um so how about season two then should we do it season Elle? two i'm up for it if you are absolutely why not why there what, we go we you know we started 
so we should carry on i think oh, and um yeah <laughs> it's been lovely to see it yeah a lot of people downloading watching the videos as well mm. um so yeah if you can if you haven't yet as we've mentioned this pretty much every episode do do share the uh the podcast do like and subscribe to the video mm-hmm. uh tell your neighbor about it um force your friend to listen to it and um and we'll get the word out one way or another and uh, we we look forward to welcoming lots of listeners and viewers back for uh, a second season uh coming in the autumn um yes but, yeah but we will see who we who we have on the bill for that one yeah and and we'll see you all at lambeth palace library again soon indeed god bless you thanks so much for listening and watching See you next time.